This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. You're listening to Leadership in Action on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Here again is Professor Mike Yuseem, Jeffrey Klein, and Anne Greenhall. Welcome back to <laughs> Leadership in Action. <laughs> Sirius XM Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Uh, for new listeners or Sirius XM subscribers, allow me to introduce myself. I'm your host, Jeff Klein, Executive Director of the Ann and John McNulty Leadership Program here at Wharton. I'm joined in the studio by my very good friends and colleagues, Ann Greenhall, the Deputy Director of the Leadership Program, and Mike Useem, Director of the Center for Leadership and Change Management. We are, um, as I said before the break, we... Just wrapped up a conversation with Larry Dubinsky, who's the president and CEO of the Franklin Institute. Part of that conversation um, had to do with the way in which Larry um, both works with his large board of trustees, right, a 48-member board of trustees, um, as well as the role that, that he plays as um, a member of the board, a now chair-elect of the board of the Association for Science and Technology Centers, um, which is a global organization. And, and we're going to stay in the boardroom, I think, for, for some of this conversation as well. We are um, happy now to welcome Bruce Goldfarb to the show. Bruce? Welcome. Yeah. Thanks, Jeff. Great to see you. <laughs> and um, Bruce is here in the studio with us. Bruce, if I can, I'm gonna, just going to say a couple words about you. Um, you're the, the president and CEO of Okapi Partners, which is a proxy solicitation firm. Um, and what that means, though we'll get much um, further into this uh, than, than my high-level description w would certainly suggest, um, is a proxy solicitation firm is, is essentially acting as a sort of campaign manager in corporate voting situations, advising companies um, how to handle the fights and really running campaigns on, on behalf of the organization. Um, Bruce, uh, one of the things our producer shared with us is that um, one of your firm's mottos is that there's no such thing as a routine annual meeting. Is that is that correct? <laughs> That's right. They're from when I got into this business, and uh, it was for me about 15 years ago. Part of the reason I got into this business was that there was a proxy season, mm -hmm. that there was a time where there were events that went on, and it it was seasonal, and you had summers free and some time off, and that's really not the case. There's nothing routine anymore. It's year-round, and it's actually a lot of fun because of the year-round nature. How um, how often do you actually attend the annual meetings? Is that is that part of the role? It, it is part of the role. I, I personally attend 15 to 20 meetings a year, but as a firm, we probably do attend about 100 shareholder meetings a year. Wow. Well, and are there... Um, are there memorable meetings as you think back over the last 15 years that um, that you could describe a little bit about here? Oh, there, yeah. You should have seen his eyes roll. <laughs> there are some wildly memorable meetings. Um, in fact, one of the most memorable meetings that I attended happened right here in Philadelphia around 2004. We went to the Walt Disney shareholder meeting. Mm. You were there as well, Mike. I and, was. <laughs> so y you, you would know 4,000 people. Um, hours-long presentations right. and, uh, you know, just a, a really unusual outcome of, of the way the world changed for, I think, one of the, the big events in terms of the way the world changed for how investors look at board members and how board members look at each other. Right. And, Bruce, before yeah. we leave that meeting, just say yeah. why yeah, say, it was yes. a, a bit theatrical as these things go. Well, that was the meeting where uh, Roy Disney, who is uh, Walt Disney's nephew, mm -hmm. uh, one of the largest owners of the company, challenged uh, whether or not Michael Eisner should be on the board and ran a vote no campaign mm -hmm. against him. And, and uh, my firm worked for the Disney Corporation. We worked for uh, Mr. Eisner. And uh, the, the Roy Disney group received a little more than 40% of the votes against mm -hmm. um, having uh, Eisner maintain his seat on the board. So mm -hmm. it was really mm -hmm. uh, an event. But what, what made it an event, not just a business event, and I think the reason Mike caught me roll my eyes, was you really had 4,000 people who were very into Disney 
and right. you would it wasn't your average shareholder base coming in i mean these are people who you know had disney tat- characters tattooed on their arms and he dressed ears, yeah. as dressed disney up characters, characters. Yeah, yeah exactly and so it was quite so it's comic con <laughs> meets the the annual meeting kind <laughs> yeah. of a little wow. bit of that right. oh, wow. i love the fact uh, bruce as we walked in i actually met mickey mouse uh, <laughs> that's right. There he was. He stuck out a three-fingered hand, and we had a handshake. And, well, and Bruce said better than that. Bruce, I don't want to embarrass Mike, but would you tell us who he dressed as? <laughs> <laughs> I were, we'd have to go back to the tape. There were <laughs> there were so yeah. many characters there, um, including governance characters like Evelyn Y. Davis, who yeah. who you know sort of grandstanded through the meeting. So it was. Uh, you dressed as Evelyn White. <laughs> you know, but boy, it does. Uh, the, the, you can't overstate the color. In fact, outside the meeting, this was down here at the convention center here in right. Philadelphia. Every major network had their truck. They were broadcasting. They couldn't go in, but they were broadcasting right. from the periphery. So anyway, Minnie Mouse was there, Mickey Mouse, Donald Duck, and then what are called corporate gadflies. So just, just say a word about what a gadfly is, and that's what makes these meetings so much fun. Well, that's right. So a, a corporate gadfly is usually an individual investor who comes to shareholder meetings and they they promote governance issues they want to be heard at the meetings and some of these investors are, are you know bring ideas that have now been embraced by other shareholders but uh, you know if you went back a few decades they really were at the at the extreme of the <laughs> shareholder base Management viewed them as gadflies, and it was probably more of a pejorative yep. than it's become in many ways. Yeah, mm. uh, and just uh, a statement about why sometimes CEOs feel very underpaid. At this particular meeting, one of the gadflies stood up, asked Michael Eisner, chief executive and also on the board of Disney, a question about the animation studios in China creating animation for Disney. And uh, Michael, who CEO, turned to his number two person, who later became chief executive, a guy named Bob Iger, uh, and was about to say, Bob, why don't you take this question, put this corporate gadfly before, you may remember this, before Bob Iger could say anything, uh, began to scream at Michael Eisner, saying, Michael, didn't your mother teach you anything that when somebody asks you a question, you shouldn't turn away from it. What are you doing? Anyway, <laughs> he felt underpaid that particular day. Uh, I think he felt wildly underpaid that day. <laughs> I I only regret that we didn't have the show three weeks ago because I would have totally dressed up for Halloween as a corporate gadfly. That's, That's a great idea. That's a great idea. It's a costume only befitting the Wharton School, right, apparently. Exactly. Right, it's not going to work on a lot of streets. Yeah. You're what? <laughs> so, so Bruce, um, then how do you lead a campaign then for Disney? If we go back, what what was your campaign? Well, that that was a, a challenging campaign in in a different era. I mean, what what's similar okay. and and probably what what we've learned to do about leading campaigns for our clients. And by the way, we work for corporations and we work for investors. We work mm-hmm. for a number of active activist investors. Uh, in addition to defending companies, but what's similar about the process is that we really do help our clients understand who the investors are in a company, how those investors think and behave, mm-hmm. and then we work on the outreach and we work really as part of a team, whether it's for with lawyers, investment bankers, prof- um, public relations professionals, um, to really get get message across. And what's really changed since um, the the Disney campaign is that in in many ways, every part of this process has become more sophisticated. Um, And Mm -hmm. and I think technology's changed it. The the access to information, Mm -hmm. you know, the velocity of information Mm -hmm. is is what's changed the process. Um, But really to to lead the campaign is to get people to understand who you know who your voter is, mm-hmm. and and so we, it, it's very apt to describe what we do as sort of we manage an election campaign. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but it, it's sort of figuring out who your who your audience is, who your voter is, mm-hmm. is is probably one of the biggest challenges on the front end, mm-hmm. and then figuring out how that voter their thought process has changed and evolved over time, mm-hmm. and there's sort of a significant evolution. So whatever I did mm-hmm. in two thousand four. Um, doesn't really have the same same sort of impact now, and the how you would marshal voters to get 
to the polls mm. was probably a big challenge in in a situation like Disney where there really are a lot of individual investors. But if you jump the gap of those 13 years, what's changed significantly is the share ownership is comprised of much larger institutional right, investors. Right. And those institutional investors have changed their thought process behaviorally and even even among the institutions, you know, now we have much larger passive investors, mm. ETFs, and in, yeah. who own, in some cases, 10, 20, 30, 40 percent of the shares of a company. You rarely see shareholder bases like a Disney where mm. there's 50 percent of the shares held by individual investors in these in these situations. P&G, they had a lot of retail shareholders. We worked on a campaign on behalf of Elliott Management for Arconic this year, and they had a significant chunk of individual investors. But more frequently, it's the institutions, mm -hmm. and then it's sort of segmenting those institutions, mm -hmm. breaking down which institutions think a certain way, and then, you know, it's sort of blocking and tackling mm -hmm. among the larger investors in every campaign. Bruce, could you describe what the process is and what the fulcrum point is? So let's say, I think you just went through the P&G process there, as right. you mentioned. Uh, kind of what happens? What's the chronology? When does it come to a head? <laughs> so that also goes to the concept of what's year-round about our business. Um, it, it used to be a proxy fight was a, a fairly quick situation. Uh, an investor would show up within some short window before a shareholder meeting, and it used to be proxy season, April, May, June, mm -hmm. there would be meetings. And so in the proxy solicitation business, we would be busy with clients sort of January, February through June. Now, part of the change has been partly because of mm -hmm. the, some legal machinations. Companies have advance notice bylaw provisions that require an investor to notify a company if they're going to run a campaign, and that's typically, mm -hmm. um, you know, 90 to 120 days before the shareholder meeting. So if you're out 120 days before the meeting, you've now moved the whole process a half year, which means that the investor who wants to run a proxy fight has to start thinking about their process three to four months before that. So if I'm working for an investor, they're looking at companies that they may want to invest in or they already have an investment, mm -hmm. or they may want to invest a more significant chunk, but sometimes with an element of surprise. That actually was the case mm -hmm. a few years ago. Now there's less surprise to the process, so the campaigns start earlier. Each side takes a look at what they need to do to reach out to their shareholders. And so whether I'm working for an investor or for management, we're helping them appreciate who their investors are. And in many cases, especially this time of year, we're setting up meetings and coordinating meetings between our clients and investors. And so that was something yeah. that really didn't go on. Part of my day today actually was spent with a client on an engagement call with one of their top 10 investors. Yeah. Let me ask, uh, this is a Kind of a more arcane question, but I think essential for what we're talking about right now. As you would challenge a company like Arconic, right. working for Elliott Management, Arconic is required to reveal to you who the owners are so that you then can start a campaign. Is that correct? And how much information do you really get about them? Well, it, it's it, it's partly right. Um, companies are have to reveal a certain amount of information about their shareholders and depending where the company is incorporated they either are they either provide more or less information mm -hmm. we just finished a campaign for a an investor against a company domiciled in the Cayman Islands a Chinese uh -huh. company domiciled in the Cayman Islands they didn't have to provide any information mm -hmm. on the other hand a Delaware corporation will provide information about certain shareholders at least who owns the shares at a broker level yeah. and the registered shareholders. The rest of the information, part of our job is to piece together, partly from public filings, partly from calling yeah. around. And I'm going to yield the floor to my colleagues in just a second. Yeah. Once you've got that information, then you can do what any political campaign does. You start calling them, 
That's right. talking with them, sending solicitations, advertising, even in national magazines. Well, that, that's right. And as the campaign gets going, so when yeah. you've really launched the campaign, when you've put out your yeah. proxy materials and you say, I'm going to ask for your vote, then you can you can do all sorts of outreach. And, and Mike is right. It could be you know, in the newspapers, but we've sort of moved to the next phase now. There's social media mm-hmm. that we use. Um, in the Arconic campaign, Elliot mailed a video to certain of the investors that you, you could see on the internet, but they wanted to make sure they would reach the investor with the message along with their proxy card so that you could get people to take action right away. Oh, wow. So, mm. the you know, the technology, we, we use smartphones now to reach out to people um, uh, by text. There's many more ways to reach people, um, but you still, for individuals, the, part of the goal in a campaign is to get them to overcome their apathy and mm. take action. And then with the institutional investors, it's to get them to act in a way that, you know, will be supportive for you. You know, mm. and, and on Ooh. that last point, it comes down sometimes to the color of the proxy statement. So vote the white proxy. Don't vote the blue proxy. All <laughs> well, <that>. Say more. <laughs> that's right. That, that, that's right. It, you, your goal is sometimes to simplify. I, I mean, you know, it, it, I wish I'd sort of studied messaging when I was here in college and something that that would have been applicable to these to these concepts. But you do realize sometimes it's like just simplify mm-hmm. the process and sometimes get it down to vote white, vote gold, vote yep. vote blue. And by the way, there's not that many more colors that you would really want to use because <laughs> the you're sending the paper in that color and the message won't print well in other colors. Oh, wow. <laughs> okay. Oh, so wow. don't vote metallic silver. That's yeah. what I'm hearing. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> oh, boy. Um, I, you know, I, I'd love to continue this conversation. Um, well, and I Is should Dan remind our- do a reset? I, I do. Yeah, I do. Right. So I, I'll remind our <laughs> listeners that this is Leadership in Action. It's on business radio. It's powered by the Wharton School. Our guest this hour is Bruce Goldfarb, who's president and CEO of Okapi Partners. And uh, I'm your host, Jeff Klein. And I'm here in the studio with with Mike Useem and Anne Greenhall. So that's who we are. That's what we're doing. Uh, thanks for being with us. And you know, we we've been talking, we we've been having this conversation from the the perspective of you know either the company or the activist challenging the company. Um, Bruce, I'm curious, what advice do you give to individual shareholders about how to stay apprised, appraised of what's going on, how to participate effectively um, as an individual shareholder? Well, that's a great question, Jeff, and that's a real challenge mm-hmm. because, as I'd mentioned, it's about getting individuals to overcome their apathy. Mm-hmm. Um, part Another part of our business is just, you know, what you would have considered – uh, routine mm-hmm. where we will reach out. We have clients who are investment management firms and they need to get their mutual fund shareholders to vote, to hold meetings right. that are required by regulation, mm-hmm. investment management mm-hmm. laws. The 40 Act says you need to elect your directors now and again. It's not like a corporation where they have a- annual meetings. Mm-hmm. So they have meetings when they don't have enough of their board that had been elected by the shareholders or when a mutual fund company is being sold and there's a change of control, you have a meeting. Now, these individuals largely buy mutual funds or ETFs because they don't want to spend so much time Mm -hmm. looking deeply into the process and they're not professional investors and they may not feel they have the aptitude and they used to rely on brokers to buy, you know, to recommend these shares. And so, the way to get people interested is sometimes now, I think it's because it's just become an interesting, exciting event. But when we have the uneventful campaigns, it's actually pretty hard mm-hmm. to get to get yeah. shareholders yeah. to vote. And so what we've really discovered, and, and this actually is something over the last year or so, in part because of all of the information that gets pushed out at people, even in the last election cycle, mm. we've discovered that it's harder than ever to get an individual investor to pick up a phone mm. and vote. And mm-hmm. part of the process, part of the innovation that um, got me interested in the proxy solicitation business in the 1990s was that 
all of a sudden, you were able to use the telephone to get people to vote. It wasn't just about sending the card. It was other ways of reaching out to people. Mm -hmm. And it was about creating new strategy. And one of the strategies that was created was calling people over the phone and just taking their vote over the phone, recording, voice recording the, the discussion. Uh, and and then you worked out the legal aspects that allowed there to be a vote. So I actually can sign a proxy card on behalf of thousands and thousands of shareholders now and submit that, hmm. and that would be the vote. But I do need some indicia that mm-hmm. that the individual mm-hmm. wanted to vote. The best way to do that would be to reach out to them over the phone. Come to 2016, right. you've got election campaigns where the individual sitting at home is going to be called constantly mm-hmm. by one um, politician or another or a political action committee. or mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't even tell you, even after the election, how interesting it was to me that Barack Obama seemed to call me on the phone many times. Mm-hmm. It wasn't really him. It was, you know, mm-hmm. the, but, mm-hmm. right. but, but what I realized and, and sort of uh, through anecdotally, say through my mom who lives in Florida, that people were bombarded. by phone calls. And so when we would reach out to people, they didn't want to take another phone call. They didn't want to talk. They were very skeptical. And so it became harder and you had to sort of soften your message. You had to Mm -hmm. soften your approach. You've always had to explain, since there was like a do not call list, Mm -hmm. that you're calling about an investment in a company and you have to have people who are reaching out who are well prepared about the issues. But the next step became you really had to just get that comfort level with people. Yeah. And and now we've hit the next challenge with the issues around Equifax. Mm-hmm. Mm. People are skeptical again when you're calling them and they think you've stolen their information. Mm-hmm. And so it's always a challenge and it's about awareness that there really is a campaign going on. Mm-hmm. And then people may get motivated. But it means that we end up going back to more mailing. And and then making mm. the mailing more interesting and, you know, creating videos. It's a very expensive way sure. <laughs> to yeah. get people to, to vote in an election mm. campaign, which is which is also why it's very hard for the mutual fund companies to go and get shareholders to vote. So they get some dispensation from the SEC mm-hmm. and from the exchanges where they're still able to let brokers vote. Mm. on behalf of the investors in a way that you can't do in a in a operating company's election. Got it. Got it. Thanks for that cuz I think, you know, it, it, anyone who is a, you know, member of a mutual fund or individual shareholder, um, you know, I I can picture the mailings coming to me, <laughs> right? right? And, and and so Jeff, when you think mm-hmm. about those mailings and and so when people ask or say to me, I receive mailings, oh, I have all these funds or I, I own shares of companies and I never vote. And my initial response would be thank you. Because what that meant for us was every time we reach out to an individual, we we charge a client a fee for that for mm-hmm. that service. Mm-hmm. But I, my thinking has evolved a little bit because now I do actually urge people to vote knowing how much harder it is sure. to get people to pick up the phone. Yeah. And so you know, don't ignore the ballots. Right. Um, and <laughs> is there, um, you know, as I, I, I know I, I actually had this discussion with my own mother. Mothers right. are prominent in the show today. <laughs> um, you know, the, but that level of trust about, you know, the, the kind of information that's being provided, um, it, you know, are there, are there, quote unquote, independent, you know, news sources or other places that you would encourage people to go to get corroborating perspectives or, yeah, I mean, that it's part it's part of the challenge of it, it all, right? It, it is part of the challenge. I mean, remember, we're running election campaigns. Yeah. And so there is some level of getting people behind your ideas. And mm-hmm. there is some some level where, you know, you're you're trying to muster facts in the way that you want to mm-hmm. do it. Our perspective at Okapi Partners is that we are only going to provide information that is publicly available, that's mm-hmm. in proxy materials. We're going to work with our clients mm. to make sure that the material is out there. And while we may have a dialogue with people in a way that you're going to highlight the points that, that are important to you, and we also work on messaging and Q&A about the issues that, may be, that might hurt mm-hmm. our campaign, 
we want to make sure that we've given them uh, you know something fair and accurate mm-hmm. um but it, it's a very hard process i mean as i mentioned earlier we work with lawyers we work with investment bankers we work with pr professionals and you see the spin mm-hmm. every day in these campaigns and if you watch the business news or if you any any of the the you know business media that covers these campaigns you see the spin constantly right. and and it can be very hard and both sides will be telling a truth mm-hmm. but finding the truth and making that decision is really hard and that's not just for individuals I see that with, you know, the largest institutions. They make decisions. Sure. I I don't always agree with their decisions. And, you know, and that's not not just because it may be because they voted against my client. Right. But it it may be in situations where, you know, something's more important to one investor than to another. And if we could all see the future as to which investment worked right and what was right and we had that ability, you know, you'd know which which board member was the right person, which merger you should support, but you don't know. Mm-hmm. And so it is It is a matter of being informed and, and sort of relying on um, who you believe will be the person to help guide you through it. Absolutely. All right. Thank you very much. Um, we're going to go to break, and uh, I'll remind our listeners that I'm Jeff Klein, and we're here talking with Bruce Goldfarb, who's the president and CEO of Okapi Partners. Um, we're going to continue this dialogue about the the nuances, the complexity of really you know large scale persuasion uh, techniques within uh, proxy solicitation. So I'm. I'm still Jeff Klein. I'll tell you what. (laughs) All right. You're listening to Leadership in Action on Business Radio. It's powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM 111. Stay tuned. We'll have more after the break. Welcome back. Leadership in Action, Sirius XM Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm your host, Jeff Klein. I'm in the studio with Ann Greenhall and Mike Useem tonight. Also in the studio is our guest this hour, Bruce Goldfarb, who is president and CEO of Okapi Partners. And I have not yet mentioned, so I should say also a proud alum of true. Uh, the university and the Wharton School. Right. As an so, undergrad. Yes. So uh, it's great to have you back on <laughs> yeah. campus as well, Bruce. It's great to be back. It's uh, well, I almost feel like I don't leave. My my wife is getting a doctorate here. Hmm. My older son is oh. a senior in the college. So oh, nice. happy to be here. Fantastic. <laughs> That's great. Fantastic. And and just to stay on that for a second, and then I um I know we want to dive back into uh, this conversation we've been having about working with investors. Um, I noticed that your um, your educational path um, is. We'll call it broad. Right? It is. And, sure. and so you, you graduated with two degrees. Um, right. Tell us a little bit about that. Right. I came to Penn and I went to the college and I thought I would study political science. Mm-hmm. Um, I took a course in poli sci that was less than inspiring, but I took an art history class that was very interesting. Mm-hmm. And, and I realized mm-hmm. I could also go to the Wharton School. And and have the oppor- all sorts of opportunities from coming here. Uh, and when I was a freshman, um, a Van Gogh painting sold for like fifty three thousand fifty three mm-hmm. million dollars. Sorry, and uh, and I said, wow, maybe there's some oh, some great. career Something here out there. <laughs> and uh, I was going to say, if it sold for fifty three grand, you were a freshman a long time. Oh, ago. Yeah, that's, right. <laughs> that's right. So so the painting sold for fifty three million dollars. Right. Um, and that that sort of perked my interest, and I guess I also had a very a good visual memory, and I said this works out really well. So along the path, I was getting a dual degree, and uh, went to look for an internship after my junior year, or for my mm-hmm. for the period after my junior year, and I sent resumes to a bunch of investment banks, and I sent resumes to. Sotheby's and Christie's and oh, great. you know for a story that is is sort of many hours long and I'll right. save it for another day uh, I had an opportunity to either work at Drexel Burnham or Sotheby's oh wow. wow and it seemed more interesting to go to Sotheby's which I did and I had a, a great experience there and it turned out the general counsel of Sotheby's mm-hmm. um, had created the art lending division so that he had the idea that people can buy art 
and the art would collateralize the loan to buy the art at at prime plus five. And so New York State said, well, maybe this doesn't work as well as, as we thought. Mm-hmm. Um, but by having the art collateralized, and if you defaulted on the loan, so it would be sold it again. And so um, one of the great, the Van Gogh irises that was also sort of known for um, this big sale at auction it never left the showroom at Sotheby's. I had the ability to see it in the back oh, until great. it was purchased again by the Getty Museum, which is which is where it hangs out. But in any event, going to Sotheby's, I realized a lot of the people there were sort of the progeny of the of the rich and famous. Sure. And uh, um, I had a job there, and the general counsel said, you know, um, your background says – yeah, maybe you should go to law school or business school if you want to get into this business. And he he had mm-hmm. worked in a law firm. And so that interested me. I went to Columbia Law School. Cool. I said I would study um, art law, mm-hmm. which I did. I worked, you know, sort of I, I had an, uh, an internship in law and the arts. Mm-hmm. But I also was very interested in the business side, Wharton side. I went to work at a large corporate law firm as a as a corporate associate. Um, practiced M&A law in securities law and uh, sort of just move through the path of of different situations. That time at, I worked at Cravath Swain and more that time at Cravath had a headhunter calling me up and asked me if I wanted to work in an investment management firm. And mm-hmm. so as a lawyer, I went to what was then the old, the then Scudder Stevens and Clark, which is now part of Deutsche Asset Management, and um, I was not an investment management lawyer. I was a corporate lawyer, but I'd worked on a campaign, a, a proxy campaign mm. at one point. And in the 1990s, the investment management firms were buying and selling each other. And as I described mm-hmm. with the mutual funds, they needed to get their shareholders to vote and approve the campaign. And they just mm. put me in charge of this. Mm-hmm. And then we had a fund under attack by an activist investor. And they just said, you you work on this. And so I, I kind of fell into the proxy really solicitation business. Yeah. They even mm-hmm. put me in charge of their proxy voting review committee. Mm-hmm. And so I met the people in the proxy solicitation business, partly as a client, partly as uh, an investor to whom they had to solicit votes. And, you know, here, mm. here you go. And <laughs> and, but it's just sort of a, an ambling path. Absolutely. And what role does art play for you now? Uh, well, in in some instances, I think it's just a matter of giving the perspective mm-hmm. that, of the world or, around you and mm-hmm. appreciating that there's not one way to do things. That frequently, what we do, I describe as an art and a science. Yeah. If you're looking for the the you know sort of the the segue from the earlier segment, mm-hmm. I mean, there's an absolute science to what we do. A lot of it is art, and and sometimes having my art background allows me to dialogue with some of our clients who are serious collectors. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but it, it's just been really valuable to be able to mm. think that way. Oh, that's great! I'm I'm really glad that we got to thread that part of your story into the conversation. Thank you, Mike. Over to you, Bruce. Uh, thinking then about what you're doing now, and and by the way, I just I love to hear that personal itinerary because we are a product of so many different threads. That, <laughs> right. As it turns out, they're all kind of knitting together in certain ways in what you're doing now. Uh, as a random outside observer of the world you're in, it feels to me this is a hypothesis. Over to you, that in these uh, struggles for corporate control, uh, the proxy solicitation being uh, sort of the battle, but the bigger. Um, kind of conflict is over the sometimes the strategy of a firm or the soul of the firm, but it feels to me increasingly it's over the leadership of the firm. So to what extent is that so? And then when uh, the challengers, the some of the activist investors are pushing companies to change top management, what are they looking for to replace what's already there? I, I think your 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 theory is spot on, Mike. It, it, especially now, hmm. um, looking at a board is really just a means to creating the leadership to drive value, yeah. and and the activist shareholders who are most successful are the ones who recognize that. 
they need to find ways to create value with the assets that the company has. And one of the most significant assets are the people who manage the the hard assets, if, if there are, are any. And ultimately, that means taking a look at the plan and the strategy of the company. And that really does now come from the, the CEO and the most senior leaders of the company. But the way to get there is through the board. So, so many of these fights are about the CEO. And I think now more directly, it's become about the CEO. It actually used to be, it was very hard to challenge a CEO, very hard to replace the CEO. Part of our strategy for clients used to be that we never wanted to run against the CEO Hmm. because there was a belief that investors wouldn't vote against the CEO. And there was always Mm -hmm. the threat whether it was implicit or explicit, that other investors wouldn't gain access to management if you voted against the CEO and if you didn't support management. And that sort of wore down over time, and they're especially for underperforming companies, and with a uh, an activist shareholder who said, here's my plan, and here's how I'm going to execute it. In fact, you see more and more of the successful activists are running campaigns that are about how to lead the company in a different direction, how to create value mm-hmm. that way. And so the absolutely the CEOs are under attack. And and maybe just a quick final follow-up on that. As you've watched some of the big activists and sometimes just the big institution who are not activists but will follow an activist um, leading the way on this, when they implicitly and occasionally explicitly want a new chief executive do they want a person who is more competent, has a different strategic feel for where the company ought to be going? What, what are they looking for? What do you think? Well, you know, again, the, or this is this is what makes what we do interesting because it is situational. Yeah. And and when depending on the company, and we've worked on some of these campaigns where CEOs were the target at Arconic. I mean, the the campaign really became about Klaus Kleinfeld at. Darden, in many ways, the campaign was about Clarence Otis. And in those instances, the investors would say, there is a, a leadership issue here, yeah. and that the leadership is impacting value. In, and frequently, when we worked for the management side, you had to help your clients articulate mm-hmm. their value and their strategy. And in many instances, um, not every not every CEO was a very good communicator with investors, and certain you know how you became CEO of different organizations meant that you had different skills, and certain skills work better for different industries. And in in the modern world, <laughs> it seems you know a CEO has to be good at everything, and certainly they have to be good at communicating how they were going to be inspiring and lead to create value. But that now doesn't necessarily mean that a CEO can't be helped by their board. You know, you don't have mm-hmm. to do it all yourself. And what we found with the successful activists, they're not always looking to replace the CEO if they believe mm-hmm. that they can bring in a team mm-hmm. at the board level who can help yep. that CEO. Now, ultimately, uh, you, you find that there are CEOs who are going to leave or be asked to leave because of the pressure at the board level, mm-hmm. which I, I think is what makes the proxy fight such a challenging exercise and the reason management teams and, and boards fight them, you know, tooth and nail, because it is an implicit threat to the jobs, yeah. especially of the CEO. Mm-hmm. So it's really interesting because the kind of the, I don't know, the tagline or the underlying point there is it's much of this is about business and strategy but a big piece of what's out there right now, it's all about who's in charge, who's leading, what their vision is, and can they execute. It, it, <laughs> it is about leadership and execution. Yeah. And I think, I think Darden, in many ways, is among the most informative of the campaigns yeah. that I've worked on in the past few years. Hmm. And here's why. The folks at Starboard were not the first activists to come to the door of Darden. There was another activist group who said... We think there's something wrong at Darden. We think that there should be board members who should be replaced. And they were upset. Darden 
restaurant company. They own the Red Lobster. Right. They own uh, the Olive Garden. They own a number of other uh, restaurant companies. Um, but they wanted the the other activists wanted to find a way to extract value out of the Red Lobster and the real estate. And effectively, management turned around and said, "We're just going to sell off the Red Lobster." Mm-hmm. The folks at Starboard were very unhappy, and they said, this is not how we believe value can be created. And they created, an, or the way management acted without talking to their shareholders created an uproar mm-hmm. that allowed for the folks at Starboard to say, not only are we going to ask for a few seats, we're going to run and replace the entire board. Mm-hmm. And so <laughs> they went and found 12 individuals to run for the board. And what they did is they said, okay, what business is Darden, businesses are Darden, is Darden in? Um, what skills do we need to make sure we can have the business run well? But most importantly, how do we take all of these individuals with different skill sets together to help us find the next leader of Darden? And so they found part of their board among the nominees were was somebody who had been uh, a president of one of the divisions, maybe I think the Olive Garden. Mm-hmm. There was somebody who had experience in uh, distributing food, somebody who worked at Pepsi. There were people, who, there was a CEO of a different mm-hmm. company. There was somebody who had been in franchising. They sort of identified all the pieces and brought that together for the board. There were at least three former CEOs on that board, all of whom could potentially have been the CEO of the company. And when they all got together and then they evaluated the company, they picked someone who had been at Darden for the prior decade, who ran the Olive Garden division and who helped the folks at Starboard understand that not every bit of their thesis about what was wrong with the Olive Garden was perfect. Hmm. I'll give the Starboard guys a lot of credit. They're their friends and good clients, but they went, each board member went, worked in an olive garden hmm. for a couple of days, really went to understand the process, and they really got in deep in the operational details so that they could help understand operationally who would make a good leader for a business like this, and also somebody who could articulate the message and make their employees feel good about the process, bring customers hmm. back. It's Leadership is a real challenge, but that's where activism can work out. And and where I think it's gone is that today more companies are recognizing that they have to articulate their own vision Hmm. of leadership and a vision at the board level. And they go out to talk to their investors and explain their messaging and how they are going to create value for the long term. That's what their investors want to hear. And they're now reaching out and doing it and understanding that if you can't articulate your own vision of value and leadership, mm. a third party will do it for you. Mm. Is it time for a reset? Uh, you know, I, I'm just here to follow you. Anne. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I'm here Jeff. to follow you. You're like a conductor. Yeah, wait, Sorry. Wait, 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 wait. You look like you're going to do a reset. <laughs> well, uh, well, you were reaching for your cattle prod. So, uh, <laughs> huh, what, else, okay. what else can I do? I'm Jeff Klein. That's Ann Greenhall. She's in charge here. <laughs> Thank and, you. And uh, Mike, you seem he's just over there. I'm just I'm sitting <laughs> yeah. here. He's yep. asking good, great questions. We're leadership in action. It's Thursday night. Yep. Right. And um, if you've got a question, you can give us a call at one eight four four Wharton. Our guest this hour is Bruce Goldfarb, who's the president and CEO of Okapi Partners. Um, and you know, throughout the course of this hour, we've been talking about the work that Okapi Partners does with a wide range of clients. That includes corporations, mutual funds, activist investors, shareholder groups, private equity sponsors, hedge funds, solicitation in solicitation and investor response campaigns. Oh, thanks, Jeff. Very kind. I'm, I'd just be curious to hear you talk more about activist investors. And as I understand it, at their best, these are investors who are looking to ensure the greatest uh, efficiency, effectiveness, top quality leadership in organizations. From my experience, there, the connotation of activist investor is not necessarily positive. So why is that? So that's that's an interesting 
process because earlier we talked about a gadfly. Right. And yes. and it the beginning of the the process of reaching out to your investors meant you know getting people to vote and then the distraction were the gadflies. And when I started with Okapi Partners um we called the challengers dissidents. Um and the recognition was well that was maybe too political and the term activist was created and it had a positive positive connotation in the beginning in terms of we are actively looking at the investments that we have i like to say these are investors who put their mouth where their money is mm-hmm. and they yeah. are willing to say we need change and we're willing to help with that process actively. And the best activists are people who are deep value research investors who really learn everything about a company in which they invest. Sometimes they'll spend years mm-hmm. looking at a company before they even buy a share because they want to understand the company, their competitors, mm-hmm. the overall market, and the trends that may make a company worth more. And they have to say, do we have the resources to help that process? And what the best activists have been doing has effectively been going out, finding candidates. It's almost like they run their own headhunting firm. Yeah. They have very talented people that mm-hmm. they know who can help the mm-hmm. process. In many ways, they're like private equity investors at this point, mm-hmm. helping to run companies. And I think that the activist model is one where they say, look, we're an investor too. And we invest in the public markets and we're going to buy companies where we think we can help the process. So while it's had a pejorative effect, and I think that's just part of the political landscape of of this process, that you've got to demonize somebody if you want to get a vote, especially if you haven't mm. delivered <laughs> if you haven't delivered on the promise to create value you've got to create a little bit of a distraction mm-hmm. and a distortion. And I think that's where the pejorative side to the activist comes mm-hmm. in. They're vocal. They're sometimes in your face. They sometimes aren't sort of plain nice in the playground. Mm-hmm. They create a little bit of friction in the boardroom. And not everybody likes that. But ultimately, if you have an activist who creates results for their investors and you're an, an investor traveling along, it might be great for you. And just uh, if you just paint the profile of the activist investor, are we talking primarily hedge funds? Who who are these people? So most of the successful activists are, are hedge funds. And and that's partly structural. I, I worked in, an, in, in a traditional investment management firm before I got into the proxy business. And there were times where we were upset with a company but we didn't have the capacity to dig in we didn't we had a diversified portfolio of companies we didn't have the time and energy to focus a hedge fund they might own a handful of companies they might own two handfuls of companies but they have the chance to look at companies and dig deep and they've also in some ways there some of them are showmen yeah. some of them have demonstrated yeah. a way to get their message out Mm-hmm. To the rest of the world, it creates, you know, business entertainment, mm-hmm. yeah. if, if you will. But ultimately, that's part of it is they know how to get their message across. And they've learned over mm-hmm. time how to communicate with mm-hmm. other investors. But don't they also look self-interested? Well, I think a lot of investors look self-interested. I mean, mm-hmm. y- y- investing is not generally a business where you don't try to create maintain value your, and win right. and maintain your right. your assets. So. Sure. And mm-hmm. it, you know, some of them look more self-interested yeah. than others. Mm-hmm. Y- you've got the spectrum of yeah. of human behavior, mm-hmm. and it, <laughs> yeah. it certainly comes out among mm-hmm. among yeah. investors. That's great. Thank yeah. you. <laughs> All right. So I, I think we're we're just about wrapping up here. Um, and Bruce, we want to thank you uh, certainly for your time tonight. Um, you know, looking across the the landscape of, of boards and investors and and shareholder uh, or activist investors specifically, um, I, I just wonder are are there are there trends that you're seeing in terms of um, you know what our listeners, whether they're owners or executives, um, should keep an eye on. We are in a market right now that is a rising market, and so some people may say, so what's the point of activists? The markets are taking care of themselves, but the reality is the markets are very volatile. 
and there are going to be companies that are underperform relative to their peers. And the activists have raised a lot of money. Mm-hmm. They have to put that money to work, too. Activism is not going away. There's always going to be an underperforming company. There's always going to be uh, a company that could use a hand. Mm-hmm. And so in that environment, we we right now are seeing, when I discuss the advance notice bylaw provisions, mm-hmm. we've got a lot of situations that are percolating. <laughs> so it's it's going to be an active 2018. Exactly. folks. Great to have you here. Thanks for thanks for being back on campus. Yeah. Happy to do it. Thanks, uh, yes, Jeff. Thanks. Of course. Thanks, man. All Mike. right. So Mike and Ann, we we just have a few moments oh, here. Boy. So uh, a lot of times we would, you know, go full bore AAR. I I think I can give you 280 characters. All right. <laughs> go my, ahead. 140 oh, Ann. 140. Oh my gosh. Ah. Uh, Mike, I'm going to have to pass to you because I've just absorbed so much. I'm going to take a moment. I'm actually going to connect uh, thoughts from both of our great guests tonight. From Larry Dubinsky of the Franklin Institute, just summed it up so well what I think you do want to see in a person who runs an operation like that or any operation. He says, I like people. I see power in people. I bring people together. And I want all of us to have an impact. A mm-hmm. pretty good summary of what leadership is all about. And I think from Bruce that we've just been in dialogue with, uh, what is striking to me is how not necessarily that set of leadership qualities is critical, but some set of leadership qualities has become increasingly critical in the open equity market. It's quite remarkable. All right, Mike, thank you. I can do it in one word, value. Okay, there it is. That's it, <laughs> That's right? For, value. That was like a Rorschach. Thank yeah. you. Well, activists, <laughs> investors looking right. for value. Yeah, value investors. And then value and for, you know, talking to prospective donors. Totally. What is the value? That's 281 words right Fantastic. there. All right. And, and for me, one of the threads that I knew we would pull through this whole thing is really the importance of engaging with, understanding, and, as, as Bruce was pointing out to us, um, anticipating the perspectives of your boards, your donors, your investors. Um, as always, I'd like to thank you both oh, thank you, for Jeff. joining me here You're tonight. You're a great sport we, thank tonight. You, Jeff. Thank you. Uh, and I'd like to say a special thank you to our guests today, Larry Dubinsky and Bruce Goldfarb. Um, of course, a thank you to our producer, Patty Hall, <laughs> and our sound engineer, Tatiana Zamis. Right? We had some inspired musical yes. segues tonight. Uh, I'm Jeff Klein, and I am Jeff Klein. So there's going to be some other. I won't be able to comment on the music that's coming no. because it, it's the way out. Exactly. Right? So we'll it's just we'll encourage everybody live with whatever it is to come along with us. We'll comment on it next week. Jeff Klein, you've been listening to Leadership in Action, Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.